Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you've ever found this to be true, but it seems to me that there are there are probably many times in which the ways of God are confusing to me. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but I certainly have. Circumstances arise and and I, I think this is the direction God should go, and he doesn't go that direction. Or there are things that are, are happening in the future, and, and I'm thinking this is the direction, this is the, this is the solution, and God doesn't follow my advice and my way. And you find yourself asking God, why this and not that? And why that way and not this way? Why then and not now? And it seems to me that there are, there's a place in which some of those questions are never going to be answered. But I also find that as I ponder some of those questions, they, they sort of come back to one key question. And it's this. How does God accomplish his purposes in the world? How does God accomplish his purposes in this world? And the more I think about the, the story of Esther, and particularly the section that we read today, the more I see that question in the middle of it. How does God accomplish his purposes in this world? As Daryl mentioned, as we come to chapter 4, as we talked a few weeks ago, Haman, the second in command of the kingdom of Persia, has created a plan in which all the Jews are going to be annihilated. And Xerxes the king has signed on to it. And when Mordecai hears about this plan, his response is to take off his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and to walk the streets of Susa, wailing and weeping and mourning. You know, it strikes me as I think about that, that there's something in us that that wants to believe that, that the... Following Christ should be a life in which, well, sometimes we think following Christ in problems, that the solution to that is more denial than it is acceptance. We, we want to sort of distance ourselves and say, well, how bad can that problem really be? Or that's not really such a big deal. Or whatever the case may be. And we think about denial instead of honest lament. But you read through the scriptures, and particularly in the Old Testament, you find person after person after person that comes face to face with problems and circumstances and difficulties, and their response is not denial, it's honor. That anyone who is in mourning, anyone wearing sackcloth and ashes, cannot go past. And there were people, I'm guessing, who were crossing that line of the gate, going into the palace and doing that, and they were saying, no, let's make a law where you have to stop here. But the other thing that it tells me is that there is, a, there is a privilege that often accompanies wealth and power when it comes to these kinds of things. 
It's almost as if the king is saying, I'm going to live inside of the palace. I'm going to wall myself off from all of these things going on around me in the kingdom that I don't want to know about. And if I don't know about them, then they must not be true. And if you have wealth and power, if you have enough of that, there is a feeling in which we can say we can wall ourselves off from it and act like it's not true. We can, we can distance ourselves. We can insulate ourselves from it, which I think is exactly what the king and the palace officials do. Let's pretend it's not real. But if you're not one of those fortunate people living inside the palace, you don't have that luxury. Because life as it is, is hitting you continually. I think there is something in the back of our minds as Christians that kind of wants to believe that if we're really a a full-on, passionate follower of Christ, that we don't have to think about all the stuff around us, that God's going to just give us blessings and and life is going to be good and none of that stuff we have to worry about and we can, again, denial and live insulated. But, of course, all you have to do is look at Jesus. And you see, that's not true. In fact, in the most significant sermon that we have recorded of Jesus, the second thing he says is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There is something about a willingness to to practice honest lament That is significant to our walk with Christ. It creates an atmosphere in which we are honest, not only about the problem, but about our need. And there's something about that that moves us toward God much more readily than if we practice denial. I think Mordecai understands that. I'm not sure Esther gets it. Her response is to send Mordecai close. And there's theories about why she does that. One theory is that she wants to have a face-to-face conversation with him in the palace. And the only way she can do that is if he takes off the sackcloth and ashes and puts on clothes. But it struck me as I read that, I get the feeling that Esther's embarrassed. Mordecai, don't act like that. You're, you're, making, you're making me uncomfortable. You're making me nervous. I don't really like to think like that. And so she sends, so Mordecai sends the clothes back, and then Esther says, okay, we better figure out what's going on. And when she sends her representative, Mordecai says to him, you tell Esther all about Haman. And Mordecai says, here's even how much money, exorbitant amount of money that Haman has contributed to the treasury. And a copy of the edict he gives so that Esther can see it for herself. And then he says, Esther, you need to go to the king. And you need to plead and beg for mercy upon you and me and all of our people. As you might well imagine, Esther is naturally hesitant about doing that. She sends a note back and says, look, Mordecai, everybody knows you can't just appear before the king. If you go to the king without being summoned and he doesn't extend his scepter... It's off with your head. And she, in essence, is saying, that's a pretty big risk that you're asking of me, and I'm not sure I want to do it. And Mordecai sends another message back and says, look, Esther, God's going to protect his people. 
God is going to protect his witness in this world. And he has placed you in a position. You're in a position. You've come to this position. However you got here, you've come to this position. And I am convinced, what if God, you are here in this position, God put you in this position, you came to this position for a moment just like this. For you to be the agent through whom God rescues his people. It's probably the most famous sentence in all of the story of Esther. For such a time as this, God has put you here. And Mordecai says, look, one way or another, God's going to maintain his witness in the world. Do you want to be a part of it or not? I find it fascinating as I think about that because it's, there's an echo of that in what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. The reality of how God has created the world and how God has created the church and his people is that God's influence in the world is a, he calls his people to be partners with him in accomplishing his purposes in the world. Now, could God do it all by himself? I suppose he could. He's the almighty God. But he chooses to create a world in which his people have the privilege of being partners with him in accomplishing his purposes. You see that with Abraham. When God puts his finger on Abraham and says, look, I'm going to bless you, but I'm going to bless the whole world through you if you'll let me. He says that to Moses. He says it to David. He says it to the prophets. And ultimately, it's really the heart of the incarnation. God in human flesh to accomplish his purposes in this world. And when Mordecai says to Esther, such a time as this, God wants to use you. I think God is saying to every one of us, God wants to use you. And he wants to use me. We don't have to be kings and queens in a palace. Wherever we are, whatever we do, God wants to use us as agents of accomplishing his purposes in this world. And the question that is continually before us is, do we want him to do that? Are we willing? Are we willing to do that? It's a question that confronts you and me every single day. Sometimes when we hear that, it sort of feels, it can easily feel like stress and pressure and guilt on us. And maybe that's not always bad. But I think at the heart of it is privilege. That God is saying to you and to me, I want to give you the privilege of participating in my work in this world. It's an awesome thing that God is calling us to and inviting us to. But it's risky. It's a risk. And Esther understands that. 
maybe more than Mordecai does. It's an interesting thing that at this point in the story, you get to verse 16 of chapter 4, there is a shift in the story. Up to this point, Mordecai has been giving instructions and Esther's been obeying. Now when you get to verse 16, Esther's the one giving instructions and Mordecai is obeying. I find it fascinating that Mordecai is willing to take instructions from Esther and that Esther has stepped up and said, okay, I'll do it, but here's what I need you to do. And what does she say? He says, she says, Mordecai, call all the Jews in the city to fast for three days, and I and all the people with me will do the same thing. Fasting is an interesting part of the history of God's people. At its heart, fasting is something we do as as a as an act of seriousness about whatever it is in front of us. Now you'll find people even you'll find people outside of followers of Jesus who practice fasting and they do it for health reasons. I was just reading not too long ago about Phil Mickelson, who is a professional golfer. He has uh, he struggles with a form of arthritis, and and he's he, in an interview he did he said that every week he fasts for a whole day just to sort of cleanse his body and to get ready for the next tournament he's going to play. And there are people who do that. But the biblical idea of fasting is not really so much about health. It's really almost always connected to prayer. It's, it's a mindset that says, I want to be so engaged with God that I'm going to try to remove all of the things that could easily be distractions from that. And I'm going to take extended amount of time with God. Sometimes fasting is about contrition. It can be about worship. It can be about thinking about God. It's almost always about listening to God. And it's doing that with with a seriousness. Sometimes it feels like maybe fasting is about bribing God. You know, I'll, I'll fast and then God will give me what I want because they'll see I'm really serious about this. That always has a tendency to sneak into our mindset. But that's not what we're talking about. We don't have to bribe God to do anything. What it's really talking about is saying, Lord, I want to make sure that I hear you clearly. I want to spend significant time with you, thinking about you and listening to you and worshiping you in a way that I can't for smaller moments of time. And you can fast about anything. Mostly we think about food. And that's often the case, that instead of the time that we spend preparing and eating a meal, we spend that time with God. But it doesn't have to be food. It might be fasting from social media. The time that we spend engaged with that, we spend with God. Or it might be watching television. The time we do that, we, time, we spend with God. It might be any of the leisure activities of our lives that for a period of time, instead of doing those things, we spend extended time with God. And it's not because those things are bad in any way. It's just that we want to spend extended time with God. And we're serious enough about doing that, that we're willing to give up some of these things in order to make that happen. And that's what I see Esther doing here. 
I don't know exactly the prayers that go on during that time of fasting. Esther, it seems as though Esther has already set her mind to, I'm willing to go to the king. She says, I'm going to go to the king. If I perish, I perish. So I'm not sure the prayer is, is should I go or not? But maybe the prayer is for courage. Maybe the time of fasting is to have a clear idea of what I need to say when I go to the king. How do I handle it? You'll notice that as she does eventually go to the king, she, she invites him to a meal. And they get to the meal. And instead of saying, here's what I need, she says, how about you come back tomorrow for another meal? I don't know if that was something she did because in the moment she sort of chickened out and said, maybe we'll do it tomorrow. That's my opinion because that's probably what I would do. Or maybe God revealed to her this is the best way to success. Here's how I want you to handle this. Whatever the case, it was the serious three days of coming before God and hearing Him and engaging with Him. And I would challenge you as I challenge myself, maybe there are some times where that would be so helpful to us. To say, I, am, I have such a burden about this circumstance or that situation or this need that I'm willing to sacrifice some things to spend extra time with God. And as I said, I think spending extra time with God is, is always, always involves risk because the outgrowth of prayer is always some kind of response. I'm not sure we have truly engaged with God in prayer if we, can, if we can get up from it and just do nothing. Now, sometimes the response God wants from us is from in prayer is to just step back and wait. That's different than engaging with God in prayer and then just completely forgetting about it. But often I find that in time of prayer with God, he is calling me to something. And often that something involves some kind of risk. Some way of sticking out my neck. Some way of challenging me to something that honestly in myself I would rather not do. And yet God is calling me not just to risk, but it's almost always a part of that partnership with him. Of hearing his invitation to come and to join him and to be a part of what he's doing. But it's risk. In the Old Testament, you'll find a few places where Scripture talks about people, the need for people to come and stand in the gap. And every single time, God says, I looked for someone to stand in the gap, and there was no one to do it. And so God comes to the place where he says, I'm going to need to do this myself. He says, my arm is not too short, he says in Isaiah. I have the power to do it, but I want to do it in partnership with others. When you come to Isaiah 53, God says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? My arm is extended to save And what does that arm look like? The right arm of God is a symbol for power and might. And he says, my arm is there. It's working. And what is the description that the prophet gives us of the the work of God in the world? It's not power and might. It's a suffering servant. 
It's a servant who comes and risks everything to be a partner with the Father in accomplishing His purposes. And I'm convinced that when God calls you and me to be partners with Him, it's going to be a calling to some kind of risk. Something beyond us. And the question that keeps confronting us in that is, will we trust Him? Do we believe that anything God would ask of us to do is only because of His goodness and His grace and His mercy, even if what He calls us to is such a high risk, we find it difficult to imagine it. When you get to the end of the story, Esther goes to the king, and I can't imagine that walk. If I'm putting myself in Esther's shoes, I'm making that walk. It is the slowest, most plodding walk I will have ever taken in my life. I mean, you know, you... I'm doing everything possible to walk as take as small steps as possible to, to prolong that moment when the king sees me. I was, all I could think of in, in my own life to equate that with was when I was in high school working in a business, a small business, where I, I needed to ask the, the owner of the business for some time off. And this, this guy, he, he was very good to me, but man, he was gruff. And he loved, he loved making sure you knew he had authority over every single person in that place. He loved exerting that authority. He loved finding things you were doing wrong and calling you out on it. Encouragement was not his gift. I'll just put it that way. And I remember I had to walk up these steps to up to where his office was. And you, and you walk in and he's sitting there behind this big desk, smoking this big cigar... And stand, sitting back there going, yeah, what do you want? And, you know, my heart is pounding. I'm sweating. My mind is racing. And you're trying to think what, how, he, how to ask him for this favor. And all I was asking for was some time off. Esther is risking her life. And she comes to the king and he holds out the scepter. And he says, what is it, Esther? And the comedian in me wants to say, looks like a scepter to me. I don't know. <laughs> he holds out the scepter and he says, what can I do for you? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. It turns out exactly as Esther was hoping. But here's the reality It doesn't always turn out the way we hope it will. Risking for God doesn't always look like success. And the greatest example we have of that is Good Friday. I don't know if any person standing around the cross on that Friday would have looked at Jesus and said, now that's what success looks like. It wasn't success. Until it was. And sometimes God accomplishes his purposes in this world 
by allowing us to be a part of something where we've taken a risk and it looks like success. And sometimes we take that risk and it doesn't look like success. And the calling on us is will we still trust? Because the call of the gospel is not success. The call of the gospel is faithfulness. And the calling of God and the privilege that God gives us to be partners with him is not a calling for us to find that everything is successful, but it is a calling to find that God is good. And we can trust him. And to find joy in being partners with him in accomplishing his purposes in this world. Obviously, I have no idea what, what God may be saying to you about how he wants you to partner with him wherever you are. But I do know that the question for every one of us is, are we willing Will we trust him? Father, we thank you for the amazing privilege that we have to be partners with you in accomplishing your purposes in this world. Forgive us when we shy away from that privilege. Give us courage, give us grace. to be willing and to trust you. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.